0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is from Romans 16, beginning in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, advice I was given as a kid was that when you're reading a book or you're reading an article If you read the first paragraph and you read the final paragraph and then you sort of skim the middle, you'll get the gist of it. And while I would never recommend this, kids, and I would never recommend this when it comes to reading the Bible, there is something to this theory. Because what is contained in the body of the book of Romans is really summarized at the very beginning and again here at the very end. In fact, the Apostle Paul ends on almost the same exact note that he began, by extending the grace and peace of God the Father to the church, by explaining that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that makes sense of all that God has been doing in human history. And then he ends by pointing to the importance of the gospel. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of God. It's the life-altering announcement of who God is and all that God has done on our behalf. That God, the creator of all things, loves us, and despite the fact that we have and continue to rebel against us, or against him, that he has sent his son Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin to rescue us from our enemy, Satan, to rescue us even from death, and to bring us into a renewed life within his everlasting kingdom, that Jesus Christ lived the life that we couldn't, that he died a sacrificial death on the cross, and that he rose powerfully on the third day on our behalf so that those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ would be treated like Jesus deserves. So that when the Father looks on us, he sees, son. And now he's given us his spirit to empower us to live transformed lives that both glorify God and bless the world around us as we await Christ's glorious return and the renewal of all things. This is the life-altering news of Jesus. And this is the beginning, this is the middle, and this is the conclusion of the book of Romans. And I think that this is intentional. I think Paul is ending intentionally on the note of the gospel. Tim Keller explained it this way. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. It is inaccurate to think that the gospel is what saves non-Christians, but then Christians mature by trying really hard to live according to biblical principles. In other words, that it's the gospel that saves us and now it's up to us to live for God and now it's up to us to prove ourselves and now it's up to us to grow ourselves. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel and then we are transformed in every area, every part of our minds, our hearts, and our lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. It's not the ABCs. It is not the starting blocks. It's not the first step of the Christian life, it is the A to Z, it's the entire staircase, it is the beginning, it is the middle, and it is the end. We never move on from the good news of Jesus. We just move deeper into it. And in his closing words, there are really three important points about the gospel that Paul wants to leave us with. These are parting words, his final words to the Romans, his final words to us in this letter. And there are three points about the gospel that we need to note here. The first is the threat to the gospel. The second is the triumph of the gospel. And then thirdly, the transforming power of the gospel. If you're taking notes, let's begin here. The threat to the gospel. Now, I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure that most of you are aware of the old myth of the Trojan horse. The story goes that there was the this Uh, long, long, years-long battle between the Greeks and the Trojans trying to seize this city called Troy. And after a while, a figure named Odysseus devised a plan to build this giant wooden horse. A horse was considered sacred to the Trojans. So they built this giant wooden horse, left it at the gates, burnt the camps, sailed away. And the story goes that the Trojans, quote, joyfully dragged the horse into their city. And there's great debate about what to do with this horse. Should we keep it, should we worship it, should we destroy it, should we run it off a cliff, what should we do with it? But what they didn't know was as they spent time debating, as they spent time trying to figure out what to do with this horse, Odysseus and about 30 other men were within the hollowed out horse, now within the city. And the story goes that night fell They broke out, they killed the guards, they left the city open, and it ultimately led to Troy's demise. This is a helpful way to envision Paul's warning to us, the church here, and how we, as God's people, are to be watchful for deceptive attempts to undermine our faith. Look at me again in verses 17 and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, if I were to ask you what is the greatest threat to Christianity today, what would your answer be? What is the greatest threat facing Christianity today? Most of, the, most of the time, we as evangelicals point away to the culture, cultural pressures. It's the way of the world, political agendas, uh, COVID restrictions, advancing technology, government overreach. It's, over, it's interesting to me that the warning that Paul gives here has nothing to do with politics, has nothing to do with persecution and has nothing to do with pandemic, which, by the way, were all issues in the early church. Or anything having to do with society around them. Which is wild, by the way, because if you're one of the folks today that say, you know, things have gotten so bad, things have gotten so hard, it's never been this bad, you've probably never read church history. You've probably been living in an isolated, cushy little Christian Bubble, because the first century was among the hardest times to be a Christian. As this letter is being penned and delivered and read and disseminated in the Roman church, this is a very hostile time. And the church was living in very harsh conditions to faith. They were under the reign of a brutal emperor named Nero. History tells us that in 64 AD, after a large portion of Rome burned which history would also tell us that it was likely nero who started the fire himself in order to develop new properties and the story goes that he's playing his violin as the city burns he looks for a scapegoat someone to blame and as he looked around society he tried to find a group that he could pin he could blame for this travesty and what he ended up doing was blaming the christians And so he instituted on July 24th, 64 AD, he instituted the first systematic state-sponsored persecution of Christians. It became open season on followers of Jesus. Open season. They were rounded up. Christians were arrested. Christians were paraded. Christians were thrown to wild beasts and burned at the stake. They were sacrificed as a show of Roman authority and power and as a form of entertainment to bored Roman citizens. You know what's really interesting to me? Paul doesn't mention any of that. None of it. Which leads me to believe that the greatest threat to your faith is not a political agenda, and it's not persecution, and it's not pandemic, and it's not suffering, and listen, it's not even death. The greatest threat to your faith is believing something untrue about God. A.W. Tozer put it this way, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And Paul warns, we must watch out for false teaching. What is false teaching? False teaching is anything that drifts away from sound, biblical, Jesus-centered teaching. Now we don't know what exactly, uh, what exactly Paul was talking about in Rome at this time. We don't know the specifics of this false teaching, although Romans 14 gives us some clues that it's probably some sort of Jew-Gentile dynamic about food laws. And we don't know what sort of false teaching Paul was anticipating making its way to Rome in the years to come. But the point is that any kind of teaching that puts anything or anyone else other than Jesus at the center it's problematic, it's an issue. It's gonna cause divisions, it's gonna cause obstacles to people like you and I to believing and obstacles to belonging and Paul's very clear, do not entertain it, do not dabble in it, do not mess with it, unfollow, block, move on. Isn't it interesting, who's welcome in the church? Sinners, the worst of us. Who do we avoid? deceivers. This is a safe place to be a sinner seeking Jesus. But let it be noted, this is an unsafe place for deceivers. Paul says, avoid them. There's no place for this in the church. Don't mess with this. Don't mess with it. And he warns they're gonna be smooth and smart talkers. They may have a following They may even be those who we consider influencers. They may have a book deal or two. But at the end of the day, what they're promoting appeals to the flesh. It's the kind of teaching that causes us to focus within to your wants, to your desires, to your personality type, to your vision for life, instead of looking out and up in faith to Jesus Christ, who alone satisfies It's the kind of teaching that causes us to focus in. And there's a lot of teaching that comes in the name of Christianity today that is simply self focused, pseudo spirituality. It's all about realizing your destiny. It's all about being a better you. It's all about living your best life. It's all about aligning with yourself. And then they sprinkle on some skewed, out-of-context passages from the Bible so that it can be called Christianity, so that it can be found in the Christian section of the bookstore. Paul warns us against this, though. And it's the gospel alone that gets our focus on Jesus Jesus, who is the source of new life. Jesus, who is the only source of fulfillment. Jesus, who is the only source of a better you. Also, there's a huge growing movement today of those who are deconstructing faith. Hear me correctly. Deconstruction is a religion of its own. Don't be fooled. Deconstruction that claims to be this It's own thing, helping people come out of institutionalized religion is its own religion. And what deconstruction does is it gets people to challenge and to undermine their previously held beliefs, but then helps offers no help in rebuilding from the pieces. So what it is is a religious bandwagon that takes people to a spiritual no-man's land, drops them off with a bunch of aimless, angsty people online, and then offers nothing of substance to move forward stop believing everything you've ever believed see you later the ironic thing is that this movement of deconstruction claims to be helping people who have been hurt and wounded by institutional religion or organized religion but the question we have to ask is is this healing people Is this offering people hope? Are people being strengthened in their faith in God? What is the fruit of it? Are Are people being led to honor God through these steps? Now, I'm very hesitant to speak on everyone's behalf, but I feel fairly confident to say this. No one here wants to be deceived. No one wants to be caught by smooth talk, and flattery no one wants to find out that years down the road you took a wrong turn and you wasted years of your life on something that wasn't true you're not alone nor do i and you're in good company and so the test as we can see here of whether or not something is true or good is threefold first is it biblical Answers about God are always going to drive us back to the word of God. If it's aimed somewhere else, it's leading towards falsehood, period. How do we know who God is? He has revealed himself through his word. Is it biblical? Secondly, is it Jesus-centered? This is what helps us to avoid both extremes of legalism or licentiousness, taking God's word to mean that we can work our way towards God through our own good works or saying it doesn't really matter, all is grace. The question is, is it Jesus-centered? And thirdly, does it promote godly living? How do we know the gospel is impacting our lives? Obedience is the fruit. How do we know we've had a spiritual revelation? How do we know we're moving closer to God? We look more like Jesus Christ. Paul would say in verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Your obedience is clear. This is not the result of some religious fad. This is not the result of a spiritual trend. This is, obedience, this reputation as God's people is the result of relentless devotion to the timeless truth of God's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to cling to. Amen? You guys still with me? Okay, just let me know. Uh, Secondly, let's look at the triumph of the gospel. The triumph of the gospel. Now, triumph Again, I'm gonna speak for everyone. Triumph is probably not a word that finds itself in our vocabulary very often. It's this idea of gloating in victory and standing in the destruction of our enemy. It seems sort of archaic. It seems sort of like, you know, a primitive display of toxic masculinity from some violent past we've moved on. We're civilized, we're progressed except think about the language that we use today to still describe success. Hey, how'd you do on the presentation? Oh, I slayed it. You slayed it? You took a knife and jabbed it? Like what? I slayed it. Or great job today, you killed it. <laughs> like you did so well, it no longer has a pulse. It is dead. Or how'd you do on that test? I crushed it. I just, cr- I just crushed it. Or even I ask, you know, our kids, like, their sports, you know, in their sports, hey, how'd you do in the game today? We obliterated them. You removed their existence from the face of this earth forever? A cultural historian named Tiffany Watt Smith describes triumph like this. Maybe you can associate. The heart rises and the chest swells when we defeat an opponent. We leap up from our desks, flinging our arms skyward. Or sweep up loved ones in an elated hug at sports a sports match. Little is more contagious than the roars and the whistles erupting in the winning crowd. The passion to conquer, the thrill when we do, is what distinguishes us as humans. That's what makes us human. Triumph, believe it or not, is actually a shared universal instinct that we all, men, women, and children, possess. No matter how civilized we become. We all deep down have this fondness, sick fondness for crushing and conquering. So where does this stem from? Why? Extreme competition, the desire to always be on top, the need to always win, the need I would add to always be right, that dog eat dog mentality that I'm gonna come out on top of this thing, I believe stems from some really deep insecurity about the future. It's the result of not knowing the outcome of your life or the outcome of the world around you. And unfortunately, what what ends up happening is that it displays itself in really harmful ways towards others. Think about this. If we are crushing it, someone else is getting crushed. John Tyson would put it this way, when you are crushing it, someone has to be under your foot. So here's a question to consider. Who is under your foot? And it's not a matter of whether or not this is happening. The question is who? Who are you crushing? If life is an uncertain fight to the end, if life is an ongoing battle, then I'm in for a very competitive future. And that means some really devastating things for my relationships because at that point, everyone is either a threat to my success or a stool to stand on. No matter how much I try to convince myself that I love the people around me, if life is uncertain, then I'm in for contention. If life is uncertain, we are in ongoing conflict. If life is lived in light of a decisive victory, one that changes not only my current life, but a decisive victory that changes my eternity, if I know how this all ends, then my posture towards everything and my posture towards everyone is gonna change. And this is what the gospel offers us. Look with me again in verse 20. The God of peace will soon what? Say it like you mean it. Crush Satan under your foot. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So what Paul is doing here is he's alluding to a promise made all the way at the beginning of time, back in Genesis 3, at the fall of humanity, when he spoke to the serpent and he said, the seed of woman, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And it's a promise that was pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus at the cross received that fatal strike to his heel, losing his life. And yet through his death and resurrection, he sent that fatal blow onto the head of the serpent, Satan. Crushing Satan on behalf of all those who would believe. What Paul is talking about here is the victory that we stand in. But as I was reading through this passage, it is sort of abrasive. I mean, besides the fact that we don't probably feel comfortable about crushing things or even say, like crushing, okay, it kind of comes out of nowhere. And I thought to myself, how does this strange, true, true, but strange little passage about victory in Jesus over Satan find itself into a chapter that is all about greeting people in the church? Like, think about this. Romans 16, as we looked at last week, Paul has just listed 27 really sweet, kind, believing people like Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila, and he's going on and greet them and greet them and greet them, and then God will soon crush Satan. <laughs> and then he's back, oh, and Timothy, my fellow worker, he greets you, say hi. <laughs> and Lucius and Jason, and oh, don't forget Gaius and Quartus, they greet you. How does this all fit together? One way I believe is this, that when the victory of Jesus Christ defines your life, you begin to rethink who the enemy really is. You realize that a definitive victory means that there is now for the Christian a definite enemy. The gospel tells me who my true enemy is and the gospel also tells me what Jesus has done to that enemy, he has defeated him. And now what that means is that you can stop seeing others, other people, as a threat to your success, as a threat to your joy, as a threat to your future, as a threat to your freedom, and start seeing people, uh, people that may look different or think different or vote different, or even love different than you, not as people to contend with, not as people you're in conflict with, not as people to fight, but as those to love, those to care for, those to welcome into Jesus' transforming life. Can I shoot straight with you for a second? Can I? If you are a contentious person, if you find yourself always and easily drawn into a fight. What's the old phrase if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? If everything looks like a fight to you, that everything is contention, always needing to be right, always needing to come out on top, always feeding that dog-eat-dog world, you're probably not believing the gospel of Jesus Christ like you should. And it's probably a sign that you are not believing or are totally unaware of the true victory that is ours in Jesus. This is how you know you're believing the gospel. This is how you know that Jesus is changing your life. You've entered into a very different fight. You can look, step back at life and say, that's no longer my fight, this is my fight. How do you know you're believing the gospel? Because you redefined triumph from who can I crush to who can I greet? from winning to welcoming. But let me make this really clear. Jesus does not take away our triumph. Jesus does not take away our victory. He does not even take away our desire to win and conquer. If you have that deep down, good sign, you're alive and you're human. Jesus just makes sure that we are conquering the right foe, we're in the right fight, And we're winning in the right way through faith in Jesus Christ. There's a passage in Romans 12 that describes this scene. I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter 12. It says this, and the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and who? Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And he goes on to say, and they, speaking of us, have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Not through grit, Not through strength, not through skill, not through stamina, through the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. That's where we are. The Bible describes the devil as a defeated foe, Satan as a defeated foe, that though his fate has been set, he continues to wreak havoc in his downward spiral of demise. Paul says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But today, the way that we contend, the way that we stand in triumph, the way that we win in the here and now, It's very clear, it's by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. In other words, by standing on the gospel of Jesus Christ and continuing to proclaim the gospel to the world. Every time we trust in Christ, Every time when doubts come in and we want to turn this way or another and we say I'm going to believe in Jesus. Every time God's word tells us to do something and it's going to be very difficult and it's going to be sacrificial and it doesn't seem like it's going to make sense but we say I'm going to trust you Jesus. Every time we lean in, every time we sing, every time we believe, we are pressing down further and further and further we hear the bones cracking, the skull crushing of Satan. But you didn't think about that when you came to church today. But that's what we've been welcomed into. Let's look finally at the transforming power of the gospel. Now remember, as I mentioned, Paul bookends Romans by highlighting the gospel. He begins in chapter one by saying, now, uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power for salvation. But now, at the very end, Paul says this, now to him." who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, this word able to is the same word that we find in chapter one for powerful. And the Greek, original Greek word is where we get the word dynamite. It's dunamis. It means ongoing, explosive power. This is profound, and I'm gonna put it in very simple terms. This is what this means. The way that we are initially saved is the same way that we are forever strengthened. The way that we enter is the way that we grow. The way that we come in is the way that we go out by trusting the gospel. It's the way that God powerfully saves us and it's the way that God powerfully transforms us and it's the way that God makes us new. I'm reminded, and I'll close with the story, I'm reminded of a scene from the play Les Mis in the movie Les Mis. Where Jean Valjean has been released from prison for stealing, but despite his freedom, he falls right back into his old pattern of stealing. And not just stealing, he steals from a Catholic church. But instead of having him arrested, the priest ends up saying, Oh no, I, I actually gave this man these items. And when the police leave, he turns to Jean Valjean and he says, Don't think you're out that easy you belong to Christ now. Yes, you've been shown grace. Yes, you have your freedom, but your Jesus is now. And he's stirred by this grace. And like Paul here in this doxology, this grace is simply too good to dwell upon. It has to be sung. This is a doxology. It's not now to him who is able. Now to him who is able, it's a song. And Jean Valjean breaks out into song. What have I done, sweet Jesus, what have I done? Jake, you gonna help me out on this one? He knows this one by heart. (laughs) Become a thief in the night, become a dog on the run. (laughs) And I've fallen so far, and is the hour so late that nothing remains but the cry of my hate, the cries in the dark that nobody hears? Here where I stand at the turning of the years? If there's another way to go, I missed it 20 long years ago. My life was a war that could never be won. They gave me a number and murdered Valjean when they chained me and left me for dead just for stealing a mouthful of bread. Yet why did I allow that man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like another. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life, he claims, for God above. Can such things be? For I'd come to hate the world, this world that always hated me. Take an eye for an eye, turn your heart into stone. This is all I've lived for, this is all I've known. One word from him and I'd be back. Beneath the lash, upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife, He told me I had a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? I'm reaching, but I fall. And the night is closing in. I stare into the void, to the whirlpool of my sin. I'll escape now from the world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin another story must begin today we have five young ladies that through faith in Jesus Christ and through the act of baptism are joining this song as well did you know you had to sing today to say before God and this world, the old has come to nothing. I am crucified and I am buried with Christ and another story begins. I am risen in him. We don't get to just hear about the transforming gospel. We actually get to see it on full display.